Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Well, today... You might guess what my sermon is going to be on. I don't know if you know or not, but it's on the resurrection. And the resurrection, no matter how many times you preach it, you can never exhaust the great wealth of information surrounding the resurrection. But I don't want to just talk about the resurrection. I want to talk about the crucifixion and the resurrection because it's a package deal. Okay, The Jews considered each day or any time during a day a whole day. And I've heard people debate me. I remember the first sermon I preached publicly was actually on Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. It was in Florida. I was still a college student, and I needed to fill the pulpit for a senior pastor about an hour and a half north of where the college campus was, where my wife and I were going to college at the time. And I remember... I was in way over my head, because after the service, I didn't realize how mean people could be at a church. No joke. That was my first dose of angry people. I uh, preached on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I talked about how Jesus was laid in the tomb or laid in the tomb and was resurrected three days later. I had one guy come up and rip me up one side down the other. It was four days. Like, no, there wasn't four days in there. And, he, and I had to go back to my notes. And I'm a, I, I'm, I won't say I'm studious, but I want to make sure that before I get up on any stage and talk about the Word of God, that I've done my homework. And I spend a lot of time researching this stuff. And I remember even back in those days as a college student, I'm like, no, 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 I'm pretty sure I got this right. I I poured over it. Any time during a day for a Jewish person is considered a whole day. So when was Jesus crucified? When did he die and when was he laid in the tomb? On a Friday. Doesn't matter what time of the day it was. It had to be before sundown. What was important about that? Well, the Jewish Sabbath is on a Saturday. But the way the Jewish Sabbath works is from sundown on Friday till sundown on Saturday is the Jewish Sabbath. Okay? So he had to be prepared and buried and wrapped in those linens and laid on that slab in that tomb before sun went down on Friday. Friday, one day. Saturday, whole day, still constitutes a day. What day did Jesus raise from the grave? Sunday. Because by the time the women got there, and we'll talk about that in a moment, the tomb was empty on that Saturday morning. Said they got there early. What time on Saturday? Or what time on Sunday? In the morning. It constitutes a whole day. So the way Jewish people count time is vastly different than 21st century Americans count time. And so I stuck it to the man at that church. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't. I wanted to, but it wasn't the pastoral thing to do. So I held back. Easter has, has, has in our culture, become a celebration But it's starting to lose, or it has started to lose, the origin of its meaning in our culture. I remember even as a kid, and I'll be 47 this year, and I remember as a kid even that it was losing its meaning when I was a a youngster or a teenager. And I have nothing against Easter egg hunts and those kind of things, but when you you take a poll of people, and Barna Research has done that, the Barna Research Group say that only 42% of American adults tie Easter with the resurrection. 42%, that's less than half of the United States, when polled at random, can tie Easter with the resurrection. Now, 
Good news is they know it has something to do with a religious holiday or celebration of sorts, but they don't know specifically what it's tied to. That's kind of a staggering statistic to me. I mean, how many churches are there in America? It doesn't mean church attendance is on the rise just because we've got a bunch of churches, but we've got a bunch of churches in the United States of any number of denominations or religious traditions in the Christian tradition, and only 42% of those in the United States, what are our churches doing, right? Are we, con- are we cocooned off from society? It's, it's, it's very disheartening to me. If, if I am not, or pastors like myself are not standing on stages like this across the United States proclaiming the Word of God with integrity and truth in its fullness and not just in the pieces that are not offensive, then we're missing the mark. When we talk about the resurrection, you can't talk about the resurrection without talking about the death, but we don't like to talk about death that much especially the gruesome death of the cross. I remember several years ago, I was actually unpacking the gruesomeness of the crucifixion and the beating of Christ. I'm not going to do that today, but suffice it to say, it is one of the most gory and gruesome things you can think of from a medical perspective or otherwise. And I remember having people say, why are you doing this? Why are you speaking? It's really offensive. Yeah, you need to know what Jesus went through. When you read scripture, it's not a fairy tale storybook of romance and just good stuff. It has some pretty harsh truths in there. And you can't look at the celebration of the resurrection without looking at what it took for Jesus to get there. And so today, we start with Mark's gospel. And we're looking at the crucifixion and the resurrection. If you know anything about the Gospel of Mark, it is the shortest gospel in the New Testament. We have four gospels. The Gospel of Mark has 16 chapters, depending on which scholar you talk to. It only has 15 chapters because the 16th chapter was not in some of the more ancient manuscripts. That's a different topic for a different time. But it is the shortest, shortest gospel that we have. Now, guess what word occurs more often than not in Mark's gospel? Immediately. The word immediately happens a lot. It's one of those words that you see over and over and over again. So why do you think his gospel is short? Because it's kind of the Reader's Digest condensed version of the gospels. It doesn't mean it's less than, it just means it is shorter. They were trying to get the message out. Mark's Mark's audience was a Roman audience. And so the Roman audience would have heard these words when it was initially penned. In Mark chapter 15, starting with verse 33. Jesus had been crucified. He's hanging on the cross. And it says, at noon, darkness fell across the whole land until about 3 o'clock. Okay, some of your versions of Scripture will, will, will mark time differently. Again, from noon until 3 o'clock, darkness spread across the land. Then at 3 o'clock, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which is Aramaic, and it means, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Or some of your versions say, forsaken me. Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought that he was calling for the prophet Elijah. Why? Because in the Old Testament it said that Elijah would come and precede the Messiah who was to come. And so one of them ran and they filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed on a stick so he could drink. Wait, he said, let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. And then Jesus uttered this loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's significant. We'll talk about that in a moment. 
When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, this man truly was the son of God. Why is that significant? Because the Roman soldier is a Gentile, despised by the Jews. And who was the first at that moment to proclaim that Jesus truly was the son of God? His disciples had abandoned them. Where were they when he was taken on the cross? They weren't anywhere to be found off in the shadows, defeated, broken, because they misunderstood Jesus' words, that I'm going to die, but don't worry, I'll come back. I'm going to die, but don't worry, I'll come back. I'm going to die, don't worry, I'll come back. He said that three times to them. There was no reason they should have missed this opportunity. When the Roman officer stood facing him, standing guard so that nobody could storm that cross and take him off. When he looked up and he heard those cries, one of the other gospels writes, his last words were, it is finished. This man truly was the son of God. Some women were there watching from a distance, including Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. They had been followers of Jesus and had cared for him while he was in Galilee. Many other women who had come with him to Jerusalem were also there. Then flash forward to Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 16. Saturday evening when the Sabbath had ended, Mary and Ma- Mary. Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. So on that Saturday, as soon as Sabbath was over, so they wouldn't have been breaking the Sabbath, when sun went down, they went to the marketplace. And as was customary, they would have bought spices and different things, not to embalm the body of Christ, because the Jewish people never did that. They would let the body decay on that slab inside of a tomb. And when the body decayed, after about a year's time, they would collect the bones that were left and put them in what we call an ossuary or a bone box. And then there were these niches that were carved out, small little niches that they would put these bone boxes in. This is why they had family tombs. When you hear in the Old Testament that they went to be buried with their fathers or their ancestors, they would typically have ancestral family tombs with niches carved into the sides of this cave inside which they would be buried. So what were the ladies getting spices and the oils and the fragrances for? Because by day three, the body would have begun the breakdown process. Would have begun to decay. The women got up after the Sabbath, went to get spices because they expected the next morning to go to a tomb that represented death to begin smelling death. They wanted to cover the odor. So it wasn't offensive to those who would pass by the tomb. Very early Sunday morning, it says, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb, and on the way, they were asking each other, as if an afterthought, Who will roll the stone away for us from the entrance of the tomb? A huge, round stone weighing extreme amounts of heaviness. Who is going to pull this away from for us? They hadn't been aware that the Romans had actually sealed the tomb so it could not be opened. One of our gospels tell one of the other gospels tells us that. So they're going there and they're saying, who's going to roll the tomb back so we can spread these spices all over the linen garments that Jesus is wrapped in so it at least masks the smell of his death. But as they arrived, they looked up and they saw a stone, the stone which was very large. It had already been rolled aside. And when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. The right side of what? That burial slab where Jesus would have been. The women were shocked. That's putting it mildly. 
If you were going to a tomb expecting to see a dead body, but the stone has now been rolled away, and there's a young guy there in complete white robes sitting on the slab where Jesus' body had laid, just on the right-hand side of it, would you be shocked? I think I would be too. The women were shocked, but the angel, now it's not just a young man, but it's revealed He's an angel, said, don't be alarmed. Or some of the versions say, don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. He's sitting on the right-hand side of the slab where the body had been laid out. He said, look. This is where they laid him. One of the other gospel writers says it's the linen clothes that he would have been bound in. It would have been wrapped multiple times around the body from the feet to the head. There would have been a burial head cloth placed over the head as well and then tied down. The gospel writer, one of the other gospel writers tells us that the linen clothes were still wrapped. It's as, almost as if they had been deflated, that there's nothing inside of them. And so the angel in Mark's gospel is pointing and says, look, this is where they laid his body. It's empty garments. Now go tell him, or go tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. They're in Jerusalem, just outside of Jerusalem. This is a borrowed tomb by a guy by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. On Friday, before sundown, before the Sabbath happened, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, from John chapter 3, where Jesus says, you must be born again, and also says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That Nicodemus was the one with Joseph of Arimathea who had prepared the body for burial to quickly get him in that tomb before Sabbath. He's laying in that tomb and he raises from the grave, but the messenger tells them to go on to Galilee, which is further north. Jerusalem is at the southern end of the Jordan River. You have to go several miles north to Galilee. Where, why is that significant? Where did Jesus first begin his ministry? Where did he first call his first disciples? Come with me, I'll make you fishers of men. Sea of Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. The women fled the tomb, trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. But then they briefly reported all this to Peter and his companions. Afterward, Jesus himself sent them out from the east to the west with this sacred and unfailing message of salvation that gives eternal life. Amen. Do you ever wonder why in Mark's gospel the angel says, go tell the disciples and Peter? Peter was a very outspoken disciple of Jesus. <laughs> Oftentimes sticking his foot in his mouth. Jesus had told Peter, when Peter had told him one time, um, when Jesus had said, listen, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going I'm to be killed by the authorities. And, Peter, and Peter's like, no, 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 we'll never let that happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Do you remember that? And then another time, Jesus is telling them what's going to happen. And Peter says, I'll never flee. I'm going to be right by your side, no matter what happens. You remember, this is the week, the Passion Week. They're in Jerusalem when this is happening. And what does Jesus tell Peter? Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. There's significance in the, the n numbers in Jewish 
teaching. The number three means complete, as well as the number seven. But number three is kind of this number of wholeness and completeness. And so what's meant to be told there is that Peter completely denied Christ. As he denied him three times, it was as if coming full circle. And it says in that last denial, he even cursed, saying, No, I swear I didn't know him. And then the rooster off in the distance is crowing. And it says in one of the Gospels that Jesus was close enough in proximity to Peter that when that rooster crowed, Jesus and Peter locked eyes. Peter crushed by the weight of the moment and the significance of his denial, realized, I've just done the worst thing ever. So now the angel in Mark's gospel saying, go tell the disciples and Peter. John's gospel in chapter 21, we get this famous story of Peter and Jesus having this conversation. And Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Peter says, you know I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. He says it two more times, three times, as if to say, you denied me three times. I'm restoring you. I forgive you. Here's the key point this morning. With the resurrection of Jesus came the glorious fulfillment of the promise of salvation. What were some of the elements that happened that day? The sky went dark. Why is that significant? The sky goes dark in Western PA all the time. <laughs> it was like, Jesus is here, right? No, 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 no. It went dark. Many scholars believe that there was something akin to a solar eclipse, that kind of darkness. It, when they say dark, it wasn't like dusky. It says Dark. The sky went dark. It went dark from noon to 3 o'clock for three hours. How long is the solar eclipse? We had one not too long ago. You had to drive to Kentucky or further south to see it. It lasts just a few minutes. The sky went dark for three hours. I would say that's a miracle. Others might say it's coincidence. Amos chapter 8, verses 9 through 10, this is the Old Testament. One of the prophets in the Old Testament writes these words. Listen to this. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning. What was happening when Jesus was crucified? The Passover celebration in Jerusalem. It was a time of celebration and a festival to remember that God had set the captives free from Egypt and bondage and slavery to Pharaoh. But this time, I'll make the celebration a sorrowful event. I will turn your feasts in the morning and your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son at the end of it, like a bitter, and the end of it, like the bitter day. This is Amos, centuries before Jesus. According to scholar Matthew Henry, Jesus was denied the light of sun when he was in his sufferings to signify the withdrawing of the light of God's countenance. And this he complained of more than anything else. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's at that moment that the glory and the presence of Almighty God the Father turned away. Because it was at that moment that the sin and the weight of evil that the world had ever experienced or ever will experience was taken upon Jesus this sinless man who would experience zero sin would experience the weight of that sin of every one of us in this room and every person who would have ever existed from the beginning of time to the end of time. We can't fathom that kind of sacrifice. We can't see in our own mind's eye this reality of one man taking that on himself 
But isn't that just the point? He wasn't just a man. He was Emmanuel, God with us. Biblical scholar and author, the late William Barclay, suggested that there is a mystery behind this cry of Jesus on the cross that we cannot penetrate. There's something mysterious about it. We can't unpack it. There's a paradox of sorts in this, in this my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Crying out from the cross. Jesus had taken this life of ours upon himself. John in John chapter 1 said, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And it says that we didn't recognize him. Did you know they didn't recognize him even up to the very last breath he breathed? And then we have this Roman soldier who says, oh. Something like scales must have fallen from this Roman soldier's eyes to say, Surely he was the Son of God. He had suffered all that life could bring. He had known the failure of friends, the hatred of foes, the malice of enemies. He had known the most searing pain that life could offer. And up to this moment, Jesus had gone through every experience of life except for one. He had never known the consequence of sin. Now, if there's one thing that sin does, it separates us from God. Regardless of what you think about sin, this is one thing we can all agree on, or at least I would hope that we could. Sin is a separation from God. Me doing what I'm not supposed to do or not doing what I should do separates me from God, from his perfect ideal. It puts between us and God a barrier, something like an unscalable wall. That was the one human experience through which Jesus had never, ever passed. It may be that at this moment, that experience came upon him, not because he had sinned, but because in order to be identified completely with our humanity, he had to go through it. In this terrible, grim, bleak moment, Jesus really and truly identified himself with the sin of mankind. Here we have this divine paradox. Jesus knew what it was to be a sinner and yet having never sinned himself. And this experience must have been doubly agonizing for Jesus because he had never known what it was like to be separated by that barrier from God the Father. The utter aloneness on the cross. You see, Jesus didn't need any of us. He was at one with the Father, and the Father was at one with him. He was perfectly complete, regardless of you and I. But the fact that he was willing to suffer so greatly is something I don't think any of us can truly comprehend. This is why the cross is somewhat of a mystery to us. Why did it take a man dying on a cross to bring us salvation? How could that be? That seems like nonsense to the world. But there's also something super refreshing about that, that somebody would be willing to stand in the gap for you and I? To say, I'll take hell for you because I love you that much. Jesus says, most of us are willing to do good things for people that are good. Maybe even a close family member. But what about those who spit in your face, who curse you? What do you think time and time again? He says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Because he was willing to do that for us. And every one of us have been his enemy at least once in our life. When we've broken a command or a teaching or lived selfishly in some way, form, or fashion, we've in essence spat upon Jesus and upon the cross by the way we've lived life. This is why Jesus' death on the cross was so agonizing, not because of the pain of the nails in his wrists or his feet or 
the complete and utter agony of the beating he took before that. And not even from the crown of thorns. You see, I think the agony of utter abandonment by God as he took upon the sin of the world was worse than any physical pain he could ever endured. Because he took on hell for us. It says the curtain in the Jewish temple was torn two from top to bottom. You know what's significant about that? There are actually two temple curtains. There's one, I was going to put a diagram on the screen for you today, but I decided not to. All right, the temple complex, before it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, was a pretty amazing temple complex. Very similar to Solomon's temple many, many centuries before that before it was destroyed by the Babylonians. We don't have a temple complex anymore to go to and to look at. We have designs, we can actually read scripture, and it gives us down to every immaculate detail what the temple complex is supposed to look like. There were multiple different courts. The outer court was reserved for Gentiles. You kept moving into different courts, closer and closer to the most inner court called the Holy of Holies. This is where the Ark of the Covenant would have rested. It's where the presence of God before Jesus died and was resurrected would come and rest above this Ark of the Covenant between the two seraph that were on top of that golden cabinet, if you will. Inside of that ark would have been a jar of manna from the wilderness in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. It would have been the Ten Commandment tablets by Moses not written by Moses, but that Moses brought down off the mountain. It would have been Aaron's rod that bloomed these almond blooms on the end of it. We do know that those three elements were in there. It was the place where God's presence would come down and would dwell among men and women. You see, we don't have a temple to go to today because we are that temple because of what Christ did. He doesn't dwell in buildings made by man anymore. Instead, he dwells among us through the power of his Holy Spirit. But in that temple court that day, when Jesus breathed his last breath, it said the curtain in the temple was torn. What curtain? This temple was made of huge blocks and stone and granite and marble, overlaid in some places by gold and silver. Well, there were two curtains. Once you got to the court of the priests, that is as far as anybody else could go. Then there was the place called the holy place, which was inside the actual building called the temple. There were two rooms in there. The holy place, which is where the candelabra, the table of showbread would have been, the burning of incense would have been in there, and then right behind that next curtain, so there was a curtain to get into there, behind that next curtain was the holy of holies. And only once a year, one person was allowed in there, and it was the high priest in Judaism that was allowed in there once a year. And that high priest had to be perfect in every way, consecrated to God. It doesn't mean that he would have been without sin, but he would have had to spend time and time and time before he went in there consecrating himself, making a sacrifice to God. Because if he went in there in an unholy manner, he could have been struck dead. They would actually tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest and they would have bells on their ankles. Why? Because as they moved around, splattering the blood of the sacrifices on the ark and on the outer curtains and all around that room, you would have heard the jingling of bells. You heard the term with bells, I'll be there with bells on, right? Why the rope? Because nobody else was allowed in there. Now, what about the temple curtain? So there was an outer curtain for that priest, for the court of the priest, and then there was an inner curtain that only the high priest was to go in. That curtain, in Herod's time, which this would have now been the temple that Herod continued to build, the curtain would have been 90 feet tall, 30 feet wide by this time. Guess how thick it would have been? I looked up and did a ton of research on this this week because I find this significant. It would have been about nine centimeters thick or approximately four inches to five inches thick. That's not just some fabric like a shirt where you're like, I'm strong. 
right? No, this would have been fabric woven on top of fabric, woven on top of fabric, woven on top of fabric until it was so thick that you had to have this huge bar across the top to even hold it because of the weight of this curtain. What would it take to tear that in two from the top to the bottom? Nothing short of a miracle. When Jesus breathed this last, we are told in one of the Gospels that the earth shook with a mighty quake, that the curtain was torn in two in the temple. Can you imagine being a priest on the busiest sacrificial day of the year where hundreds of thousands of sheep were slaughtered for sacrifices on Passover? And outside the city gates, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, breathing his last breath as the perfect atoning sacrifice. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he breathes his last after he says it's finished. And the earthquakes, it's already dark outside, and you're a priest in the temple and the curtain tears in two from the top, 90 feet up. And you hear this horrible ripping noise that can be heard a great distance all the way to the bottom. Can you imagine the sheer panic knowing nobody is allowed behind there? I'm not even allowed to see. Only the high priest can. Do you think that would have left an impression on you if you were a priest? As a matter of fact, we are told in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, God's message continued to spread in those early days of the church. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem. And listen to this word. And many of the Jewish priests were converted too. What would it take for a Jewish priest to convert to Christianity, to believe that Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice. Nothing shy of a miracle. That they would have witnessed with their own eyes on the busiest Jewish holiday of the year in the most holy place of the Jews. Finally, it was quiet. Somewhat depressing that night, that first Sabbath after Jesus' crucifixion. Disciples huddled up in dark places, just baffled by what they had experienced and seen. This man who they claimed Messiah and Lord and Master, he's died. What were the past three years all about for him just to die? They're bewildered. They're, they're dumbfounded. They're, they're utterly afraid and alone and scared and embarrassed. And Jesus lay in a tomb, a borrowed tomb, not a family tomb. Didn't even have a place to lay his head, not even in death. <laughs> and Saturday comes along after they've maybe slept overnight. And it's quiet. Roman soldiers guarding the tomb. Because the Jewish officials believe that Jesus' disciples might come and steal the body. And what do they do on Saturday except sit around? Because they're not allowed to work. They're not allowed to go anywhere or do anything. It's a Sabbath now. And so they're sitting, pondering what they've just experienced the night before, the day before. Did they not take into account that the earthquake, that it was dark from noon to three? What, did it, what were they thinking? Just like a glimpse into the mind's eye of Peter or John, or James, or any, any number of them. Sunday rolls around. Sabbath is over. Some of the disciples begin to go back to their own hometowns. It's over. 
this glorious thing we thought we were a part of, this movement with this great leader. It's over. We were told a couple of them were on their way back home and the risen Christ meets them on the way and they don't recognize him. They're headed back to Emmaus. And he looks at them and says, why are you so dejected? You look really depressed. <laughs> like, are you the only one that's not heard of what happened around here? Well, tell me about it. And they begin to tell him about the crucifixion of Jesus. And Jesus rebukes them. They still don't recognize him yet. And he says, didn't Jesus tell you that this was going to happen? I mean, didn't the prophets of the Old Testament allude to this fact? I mean, have you, have you forgotten your upbringing and your teaching? Where are your minds? Have you flushed them down the toilet, so to speak, Jesus says. And they still didn't recognize, nor were they encouraged by that. But then they come to where they're going to bed down for the night. Jesus is going to go on ahead and they said, why don't you stick around with us for, for a meal and stay overnight? I mean, it's getting late. Jesus obliges. And that evening at mealtime, while they're breaking bread together, Jesus breaks the bread. And their eyes are opened. And they both pee their pants. That's what the gospel says. <laughs> I'm just kidding. They didn't. Read it for yourselves. The reality is they were like, ooh, and Jesus disappears out of their presence. Because just three days before, they'd seen him break the bread and say, take and eat, this is my body. And that night, or that night, he broke the bread. <laughs> How awesome is that? And they run back into town and they say, guess what we witnessed? There are many people that don't believe Jesus rose from the grave. But there are many scholars, secular scholars even, about 74% of historians, whether they believe in the story of Christ or not, believe there was a man named Jesus, that he was crucified and that he was truly buried in a tomb. And that that tomb was actually empty. Why would secular, non-theistic scholars say that? Unless it was true. Because they have enough evidence based on their scientific processes to see that we cannot refute the historical context. Not from scripture alone, but from other extra-biblical sources. There are too many proofs that exist to deny that Jesus was truly alive, that he was crucified, that he died, was buried in a tomb, and that that tomb is reported to have been empty by those there to actually see it and not just Jesus' followers. It's documented. And so the question then arises, was the body stolen? Okay, who sealed the tomb? The Romans did. Who authorized to have it sealed or went to the Romans to make sure it would be sealed? The Jewish authorities. Why would the Jewish authorities want the tomb sealed? Because they were afraid that the disciples would come steal it and make up this fanciful thing that Jesus had risen from the grave. If it had been stolen by the Jewish authorities... They would have presented the body. If it had been stolen by the Romans, they would have presented the body. Well, then you say, okay, the, the followers of Christ overpowered the Roman soldiers, broke the seals, took the body out. But then let's think of the logic of that. What would have changed them from being a dejected, horribly depressed group of people who had fled when Jesus was crucified? To then come back and say, oh, we're going to go get the body. Would you be willing to die for a lie if you knew it was a lie? 
Why would you risk your life on a falsehood? And it actually says over 500 witnesses saw the risen Christ after he rose from the grave. It seems unlikely given the fact that almost every sane person on earth would not be willing to undergo torture or to be killed for a lie. And here's one other final factor before we close today. Who were the eyewitnesses at the tomb? The very first people there. Now, we don't live in a culture and a context where this is as significant as it was then, but you would never make up this kind of story and have women the first on the scene to witness this. Why? Because women's testimony was never allowed even in the judicial court of the Jewish Sanhedrin. The Romans didn't care much for women as well. The cultural context did not afford itself this expanse of great freedom for women. And so would you, if you were making this story up, have women the first on the scene, unless it was truly accurate? The women were the first on the scene. They were the first there to see that no one was in the tomb, that it was empty. I'm gonna call our worship team forward this morning, and I want us to close with this mindset 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 23. Paul writes a lot on the resurrection. He writes a lot on Christ crucified. But he makes this statement to the Corinthians who were debating on whether or not Jesus was truly a man or truly God. Because if he was truly God, he would have never died. But if he's truly man, he could never be resurrected. But listen to what Paul says. Tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection to the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the dead. But you... That can't be true if there's no resurrection from the dead. And if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if your hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more pitied than anyone else in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of the great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through one man, Adam, now the rection from the dead has begun with another man, who we call the second Adam. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised first as the first of the harvest, and then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. This is what we say at funerals. But it shouldn't only be funerals that we say this. It should be an encouragement and a hope for those of us who are still left and awaiting that day when we will be called to meet him. Whether he returns in our lifetime or whether we die before he returns, if we are in Christ, we are new creations, and we will get to see him face to face in this glorious thing called heaven. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what things are going on in your mind. I, I don't know where your faith lies. Is it in you? Is it in somebody you know? Is it in all of these pastors who seem to be falling from grace all across the globe right now? See, if your faith is in anyone or anything other than Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life, you are putting your faith in something faulty. You may have showed up today for the first time in a long time, or this may be your millionth time in this place, or listening to this message online or on TV. But it's an, un, it's, it's an unconditional message and it's timely no matter when it's spoken. Christ is alive. 
And you can refute that until, as Paul says in Philippians 2, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You will either bow in utter fear because you've rejected him or you will bow in reverence because he is Lord of your life. Which will it be? And so today, as every other day, I ask you to pray a prayer of salvation. Many of you have already done that, but many of you haven't. Many of you have maybe done it only in words, but not truly meant it in here. You know, we can put on a good show for other people. But to truly pray a prayer of faith isn't about just the words we speak, but it's about the intent of the heart because God sees what's in here. And so I would ask you to pray with me again this morning. Heavenly Father, I ask you to come into my life to forgive me of my sin, to cleanse me from all unrighteousness, create within me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Forgive me of my sins, the ways that I've veered off the path. Give me a new sense of hope through Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me to live a life that you call me to live that my identity can truly be found in Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior of my life. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.